If you'll take your Bible and open it to Psalm 54. Psalm 54. This is on page 415 in the Pew Bible. And as a uh, encouragement to you, if you don't have a Bible with you, would ask you two things. One, go ahead and open up that Bible so you can quickly refer back when I reference verses. But then also, please take that home with you as our gift to you. And please read it. And we would be honored to uh, have any conversations you would have about either this text or any other text that you might read. Now, even though this psalm is a prayer, it's also a song. And that's why it's addressed to the choir master. It arose out of a specific situation in David's life, but it's intended to be used not just by David, but by all of God's people. As we live life in this fallen world, as fallen people, with other fallen people, we're going to find ourselves in battles from time to time. There's going to be pain. I know that's not what you came here for, but it needs to be said. And in this short psalm, David is giving us a simple guide for praying in wartime. Think about like a a hymn with four verses, Uh, maybe even like one of the songs we've already sung. David is giving us a a step-by-step built on each individual verse to help us guide, to have our feet led as we're seeking to honor the Lord in the midst of wartime. Now, as a Southern Baptist, I have alliterated these four steps. They all start with P to try to help you remember so that you can use this when you're faced with battles of your own. I'm going to give you them now all together, and then we'll look at them each in turn. Here they are. Plead with the Lord. Point out your problem. Preach to yourself. And praise your deliverer. You'll have a chance to see each of those again, so don't worry if you're taking notes. You'll you'll have that again. But before we read Psalm 54, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Father, we ask that as we open up your word together, you would open our hearts to receive it, and that you would plant it deep down within us, that it would spring up and bear much good fruit. And we ask that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read Psalm 54 together. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a maskal of David when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves, Selah. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble And my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. 
All right? Verse 1 of this hymn-like psalm is in verses 1 and 2. And that's that we should begin by pleading with the Lord. Plead with the Lord. David begins this prayer by addressing his God. Now, that's not surprising. I know that. But it's also not a formality. David is fixing his attention on the Lord, and he does not look away. In fact, if you'll notice, you can let your eyes scan through, every verse in this psalm has at least one direct reference to God. And this happens to be the same God who created the heavens and the earth, who accomplishes his purposes for his glory above all. It's ultimately his name and his glory David's concerned for, not his own. Like when an artist signs her name in the corner of a painting, David wanted the Lord to display his undeniable intervention to save him from the battle he was facing. And because he had run to the Lord for refuge, David's vindication would showcase God's great might. He believed that God's power is such that no problem could ever be too big or too great for him to handle. Now, I tried to read it in light of this, but I hear in these opening words uh, the tone of utter dependence on the Lord. There's the realization that his only hope is for the Lord to hear him. If the situation David was going through played out like he had every external reason to believe it would, this would be his end. On that level, there were far superior fighting forces with far greater resources, with watching eyes following his every move. But David was praying not to the one who is seen, but to the one who is unseen. The immortal, invisible God who laughs at the odds that our enemies stack against us. Even as the Lord's anointed, David didn't make demands of what he expected God to do. Instead, he humbly pleaded with the Lord, who is high and lifted up, to bend his ear and hear the faint cry of one of his servants. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you that that same God hears our pleadings too. Now let me make one observation about what praying to the Lord and asking Him to save by His name means. It means we're committed for Him to work out the answer to our groanings according to His character and according to His timing. That is to say, according to His ways and when He wants to. And in David's case... He'd been wronged and and sinned against by others. But yet in his heart, he resigned vengeance to the Lord. He wanted justice, as we all would and do. That's right, but not revenge at all costs. If we want to have confidence that the Lord will hear our pleadings too, then that's the heart our prayers need to be coming from. Loved ones, we are in a fight 
every day of our lives. Now sometimes our lives can be going so smoothly that we're lulled into thinking it's peacetime, but it's not. As one of the Puritans has said, a Christian never falls asleep in the water or in the fire, but grows drowsy in the sunshine. One of the things a lack of consistent and meaningful prayer reveals about us is a lack of awareness of the constant battle we're in. We are caught up at this moment in a cosmic war that cannot be waged according to the flesh. Our weapons have divine power, but we must use them. Prayer to God is one of those weapons. And how many of us is it rusting on a shelf? We need to pray to the Lord against the battle against the seen and the unseen. We must keep it in constant use. So then Christian, keep pleading with the Lord. And next we see in verse 3 that we need to point out our problem. Point out your problem. David fixed his eyes on the Lord in prayer. That's where we start. But he points over to his problem. So I, I kind of visualize, you know, I'm looking up here. Hey, this is happening. And the inspired title of this psalm clues us into what was happening in this moment in David's life. As we've been working through the book of 1 Samuel together, we've seen now twice in chapter 23 and again last Sunday in chapter 26, the Ziphites betray David's whereabouts to Saul. Now there's no way to know uh, whether or not this psalm was written after the first or the second time, but it really doesn't make much difference. The situation was the same. There were people seeking David's demise. They wanted him out of the picture for good. Unlike David, they weren't concerned with doing what the Lord wanted them to do. It wasn't their pursuit of the Lord that had stirred them up against David. They hadn't set the Lord before them at all, the text says. He wasn't their guide in how they treated David. And that's why God would return their evil back to them, verse 5, and deliver David, verse 7. Notice the Ziphites are here called strangers. Now, a place called Ziph sounds strange to our ears, like something out of a Dr. Seuss book. But the Ziphites were a known part of the people of God. In fact, they were a part of the tribe of Judah, do you know who else was a part of the tribe of Judah? David. These are David's kin. So then, why does David say they're strangers? Well, the word he uses conveys the sense that these people were foreigners outside of God's covenant people. But we've already noted that they weren't. So then what is David getting at? Here's what I think he's doing. David is saying, even though they were in the visible, 
covenant people of God, their actions made it clear they weren't a part of the covenant people of God spiritually. David's God wasn't their God. Regardless of what they may have claimed, God was with David, and so it was wrong for them to be against him. And the fruit of their lives revealed the rebellion in their hearts. Well, how can we tell? By their character and by their intentions. That's why David describes them as ruthless here in verse 3. But again, instead of joining them in their ruthlessness, David points it out to God in order to ask him to be the one to deal with it. Even in writing this psalm down, David is showing that as far as he's concerned, he's going to set his hope and his heart on the Lord. Friends, remember, it was the religious leaders in Jesus' day who claimed to be in good standing with God. They did all sorts of religious things, but they lacked a love for the Lord and for others. Jesus said in talking about them, that the tree is known by its fruit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Loved ones, if we don't bear these fruits in the way we deal with one another, or if others don't bear them in their dealings with us, we don't have to rush to conclusions about what everything means, but the fact is there's a problem. Regardless of what we call ourselves, And although it's hard, sometimes we're powerless to address those problems. Sometimes all we can do is look up to the Lord in prayer and point out our problems to Him. And then we have to preach the truth of His Word to ourselves to remind ourselves He sees us and He will give justice. And that leads us into the next section, verses 4 and 5, that we are called to preach to ourselves. Plead with the Lord, point out your problem, preach to yourself. Now look at verse 4. Who do you think David is saying behold to? It's possible that David is referring to the future people of God who would use this psalm or maybe even his current enemies. Either one's possible. But most immediately, I think David is talking to himself. Now, of course, this is a song for all of God's people. I understand that. But I take this as a moment of David rehearsing the truth of God's word to himself. He's preaching to himself the truth it would have been so easy to lose sight of in this moment. 
He's reminding himself of those things that he believed about God and had learned already by experience time and time again as a way to stir up his own courage in the Lord. And what are those simple and yet profound truths he latches on to? If I could paraphrase, God sustains me and will repay them. God sustains me and will repay them. Why don't you say, God is my helper with me, okay? This is the end of the first line in verse 4. We're going to say it together. It's only four words, all right? You ready? God is my helper. Now, I hope you understand that each of those four words contains a world of meaning. I'm just going to briefly unpack them. It's the all-powerful, all-controlling God David is looking to. He is, in the present tense, at this very moment, with David in the midst of the fight. And even though he's the God over all the peoples of the world, David says he is also my God. They have a personal relationship. And as the one who is with David and for David, he is David's helper. Christians, the Lord doesn't force us to face our foes on our own. He helps us through whatever in his infinite wisdom he allows us to go through. He's the one who upholds our lives. When we fall down, when we're falling apart, he holds us up. He's there for us in a way that no one else can be. And that's why David intentionally says the Lord is the upholder of his life, not an upholder of his life. He's not one of many he depends on to get him through. He's the only one. David knows what the Lord will do because of what he has done. He's shown just how great his faithfulness is time and time again. In fact, one of the ways that God shows his faithfulness, one I'm convinced that we we don't really think about, but he brings it out here, he shows faithfulness to his people by dealing with their enemies in the way that he promised he would. He told Abram, before he was even Abraham, back in Genesis 12, that the one who dishonored Abram would be cursed by God. He told the nation of Israel that if they obeyed his voice, he would cause their enemies to be defeated, Deuteronomy 28. David was taking that promise to the bank, and God's good for it. And he needed to in order to keep from repaying evil with evil himself, as he had almost done with Nabal. You see, just like David realized the Lord is the upholder of his life, he also believed, you can see this in the text, that the, the definite evil committed against him, would be paid back. Please listen to this. This is very important. There is an exactness, a definiteness in the Lord's justice. Now sometimes, 
we do a, a good job holding on to the, the big picture realities that all will be well one day. And we need to. We need that badly. But yet we can still have a hard time grasping that this specific sin that's being committed against us, the the wrong that we're enduring in this precise moment will be repaid in full. It's not either or, it's both and. If we forget about the definite justice the Lord has promised us, it can be discouraging to feel like this moment, this hurt is wasted, but it's not, Christian. The Lord will repay every penny of evil committed against us back to its owner. That's good news, friends. But if you have even an ounce of self-awareness, that's really bad news too. Here's what I mean. While it might be life-giving to remind ourselves of God's judgment on the sins committed against us, When we realize that we're going to be paid back for the sins we've committed against others, it takes the life right out of us. We haven't just sinned against other sinners. We've sinned against the holy God of the universe who created us. Every single bit of evil in our lives has stored up God's just wrath as its payment. The wages of sin is death, friends. At this moment, it's held back like a flood. We're utterly powerless to stop. But here's the beauty of the gospel. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God sent his son to live a sinless life A righteous life required by God's word. There was no spot, no blemish in his character. And yet he stood in the place of his people to pay to the last cent the debt we owe. Instead of putting an end to us, Jesus put an end to all our sin. He died on the cross under the rush of the floodwaters of God's wrath. But because he was without sin, he gulped down that cup and turned it over on its head and said, it is finished. There's no drop left for you to bear, Christian. And then you know what happened? He didn't just turn the cup upside down. He turned the world upside down. When he took back up the life, he laid down. When God raised him from the dead on the third day. And now that he's ascended back to the Father and sent his spirit, we await the day when he will return and bring with him perfect judgment. Those who have believed in him will be welcomed into his presence forever. And those who have clung to their sin will be sent away from his presence forever. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here. Honored that you would be here with us. 
you need to know that there are two and only two places for God's justice to fall. But it will fall. It will either fall on you or it will fall on Christ for you. You can't bear it, friend. It will crush you with its awful weight. But Christ has borne the sins of the world and made it safely through. So then hear me. Right now, where you sit, if you will repent of your sins and believe in Jesus, what he has already done will be applied to you. You will be saved. He will uphold your life throughout all eternity, not just through the passing troubles we face in this world. But you need to know that if you refuse, you are choosing to bear God's wrath for your sins on your own. Friend, may that not be true of you. Humble yourself before the Lord and cry out like David in verse 1, save me by your name. If you'd like to talk to someone more about this, I'd be glad to start our conversation now, to talk to you at some point today. I'll I'll do whatever you want to do to tell you more about this glorious gospel. Now church, we need to rehearse the truth we believe when we're faced with trials that tempt us not to believe it. (laughs) In those moments, if we're not listening to God's word, we're going to be open to hearing Satan's lies. Preach to yourself by reciting the scriptures you've hidden in your heart. Preach to yourself by singing the scriptures encapsulated in rich songs. Preach to yourself by writing out the feelings swirling around in your heart, coupled with the bedrock facts that you know from the Bible. All you may be able to get out is, I know this, that God is for me, and I know He is good even though this problem isn't. And yet with the clarity of that truth, it's enough to see us through the murkiness of even our darkest moments. You see, while our problems might be out there, and they might seem to warrant all our attention, hear me, if we're not on guard about bitterness or faithlessness rising up in our own hearts, then we may end up with an even greater problem than we started with. And one of the key ways we keep our own hearts in check is to preach the truth of God's Word to ourselves. But we don't stop there. We preach to ourselves, and then finally in verses 6 and 7, we praise God our deliverer. We praise our deliverer. David was committed to worship the Lord because of his confidence in what he would do. He speaks that way. He's here looking ahead past this problem to the day when very specifically he will once again be able to go to the tabernacle to offer up sacrifices to the Lord. We saw last time 
in 1 Samuel 26, 19, that he had been kept away from worshiping the Lord there at the tabernacle because of Saul. But he understood that it wouldn't always be this way. He knew that because God had told him so. And just to be clear, this isn't quid pro quo. You scratch my back, God, and I'll scratch your back. David isn't paying God back. That's impossible, and it's ridiculous. This is worship. This is a heart overflowing in thankfulness for who God is and what he's done. Evil was being committed against David, verse 5, but God is good. And in his goodness and his greatness, he's committed to work every evil formed against us for our good and his glory. Church, we will look in triumph over all those who oppose us and our God. Don't believe me? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's a Bible verse, friends. That's because our warrior king, Jesus, has already defeated sin, death, hell, and Satan. The victory's been won, friends, even though the battle rages on. We have the sure hope that God will give justice. He will repay every last evil committed against us, either through the cross or through eternal judgment. And that's why we can pray for our enemies like Jesus did from the cross. That's why we can surrender vengeance to the Lord. That's why we should long for the repentance and mercy from the Lord to forgive those who have wronged us because we understand that we have been forgiven far greater sins against our God than anyone could possibly commit against us. You want to see that in parable form? Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Christian, the Lord has delivered you from every single trouble you face in Christ. I didn't say you wouldn't have any. There will always be trouble in some form or another until our time on earth is done. But every single trouble you face is a stepping stone designed by God to lead you further down the path of Christ-likeness. And you know where that path takes you? Closer to the throne of God. Not by way of earning it, but by way of growing in your intimacy with Jesus. And one of the main ways we're able to put one foot in front of the other is by doing what David does in this psalm. Namely, he prays. But don't just pray to the Lord. Make sure you praise him when he answers your prayers. We need as Christians to be watchful as we continue in prayer. We don't always realize this, but we're prone to miss God's answers when they come or to take credit for doing it ourselves or giving credit to something other than what it is. David could have given credit to the Philistines who threw Saul off his path when the Ziphites ratted him out the first time. He could have taken credit for his own sneaky skills to go into the camp. But he doesn't because he's not stupid. 
he understands that God is ultimately the one who has done this, and so he gives praise to his name and his name alone. Praising the Lord is practice in humility. It's kindling to keep the fires of our trust in God burning to light our way through all our future troubles. And in that, God uses our problems for good. And that causes us to well up with praise within our hearts. So then, beloved, in light of this psalm, I commend to you this guide for praying in wartime. Plead with the Lord, point out your problem, preach to yourself, and praise your deliverer. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness that you have sent your son to deliver us from everything that could come against us. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Neither height nor depth nor angels or demons. <laughs> Trial, sword, famine, nakedness, nothing else in all creation is able to separate us from your love, Father. You've given us your own son. How will you not also with him graciously give us all things? God, would you help us to trust you as we plead with you to know that you will, because you have delivered us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.